Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. I hope you enjoyed the reading of Scripture this morning. It's so uplifting. If I could, I'd like to begin this morning with uh, a kind of a strong statement. Uh, What the church needs in 2020 is what the church needed in 2019 and what the church will need in 2021. Same thing the church always needs. The power of God flowing into and through ordinary lives like yours and mine, ordinary churches like this one. What the church needs is for the wisdom and life and blessing of God to come to us and through us to the world in need. And the only problem is that we sometimes get in the way. Like, think about this question. What if God actually is ready to bless? And not just in a theoretical sense, and not just in like, the, you know, we use that word in such a weird, churchy, religious way. Like, what if God is actually fully prepared to do good to us and through us in this moment and in the moments that we're gonna enter into when we leave this place? What if that's an actual reality, a description of the way the world is? And what if the only problem is that we sometimes get in the way? Today, I wanna talk about how we can get out of the way. Welcome again to Christ Church of Ornogo. It is that time of year when new folks start to attend churches and check things out. So if you're new here, let me also again say welcome. Maybe introductions are in order. Uh, My name is Michael, and I am a member of the church here. And I occasionally have the opportunity to preach, and today is one of those occasions, and I'm going to be preaching about 1 Corinthians 5. And if that does not thrill your heart, let me just say, it's okay. I do wonder if you are new and maybe just checking out the faith and interested in God but not sure what you think and then you read a passage like this, you probably think we're crazy. And we are, but hopefully maybe for reasons that might be different than what you think. I don't know. Like, generally speaking, this isn't the favorite text of most people, even those who are inside the church. I, every year I try to, try to pay attention to a survey uh, that BibleGateway.com does on favorite Bible verses of the year. And so this is a popular website where people will go and search scriptures and study them and, and they catalog from all of the searches that happen on the website what verses people are most interested in. And it's pretty predictable. Like the first three are always the same. It's John 3.16 is somewhere up there for God so loved the world and Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and Jeremiah 29.11, I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord like the order changes but those are almost always the top three even the top 10 are usually pretty consistent I will tell you in a number of years of looking at all 100 of these I've never seen first Corinthians 5 on the list it's the weirdest thing also like some passages of scripture make great songs we just sang a lovely song called for God so loved the world comes straight out of John 3 16 I've never seen or sung a song called expel the wicked person from among you I just don't think it would be like at the top of the Spotify worship song lists, you know? Like it's just a little bit of an odd thing for us. And and then we wonder at these times, like what do you do with a passage like 1 Corinthians 5? That's a great place to begin. What do we do with this? And of course, there are some things not to do with it. You can think about the sort of the standard balance beam metaphor. So you could fall off on the one side and we could ignore this text. Like that's an option that's available to us. We could just go about our business as if we didn't hear it read or taught on. It could make no difference to us. I wouldn't recommend it, but that's an option that's available to us. Have you ever noticed that the church is sometimes really good at embarrassing her future self? 
You look back decades or centuries and you can see things that the church has done in the name of Jesus and you're like, oh, that's cringeworthy. I'm gonna have to answer for that. And whether it's political alliances or how the church treats certain people or like there's classic examples. You think back to the Crusades. Who's proud of the Crusades, you know? And you see these things in the past and you think like, how could you guys let that happen? How could you not see that that was a bad idea? And I think part of the answer is always selective attention. Part of the answer is always, well, they paid attention to some portions of the Bible, but they decided to ignore the others. And we don't want to like make those who come after us have to answer for our mistakes, so let's not ignore it. But on the other side, like we recognize that this text, if we were to like take it seriously, there's kind of this feeling that we'd become weirdos, you know? Like it seems like the crazed cultic leader who demands perfect obedience and punishes those who step out of line. Or like the, the Westboro Baptist type of mentality, I'm gonna hold up a sign about how God hates you and God hates you and God hates you and you're all going to hell. Like it's not that, but that's kind of what it seems like when we read this passage. So we want to try to find that middle ground. Like we wanna take this text back from the judgmental weirdos and actually practice it in a way that is wise and well in the 21st century church. The trick is to find out that and how this actually is a very uplifting portion of God's word. And for that, we're definitely gonna need some help. So let me pray once more for our time with the word. Father God, uh, we are grateful to be here gathered in this room. Gosh, we are so grateful to be here gathered in this room. And for those who are joining us in other ways, we're so grateful to be gathered in the ways that are available to us right now. And we sit before this strange word and we, our, our prayer is really pretty simple. Um, it's, uh, we ask for wisdom. We pray this because we need it and because you promised to give it. And we know that doesn't mean that we're gonna perfectly understand everything and know precisely what to do, but that's what we pray for, wisdom, as we engage this text, that we would understand the things that need to be understood and that we would, we would know and have the courage to do what uh, needs to be done next. So that's what we ask for, and we ask it, as always, in Jesus' name, amen. I do wanna read through this text again because some things need to be looked at twice, and I'm gonna let it, for the most part, speak for itself, but I'd like to just say a few things to make sure we're understanding the situation and, and then we'll kind of talk through interpreting where we're going. So we're gonna read it and understand the situation. I wanna give you a big picture idea to frame it properly, and then we're gonna look at some of the details. So once more, 1 Corinthians chapter five, starting in verse one. Uh, here's what it says. It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now I want you to stop right there and notice, this is a terrible situation. This isn't just like you know your random little sin. This isn't like whatever way you sinned at 10 o'clock on Thursday morning, you know what I mean? Like I don't know what you were doing at 10 o'clock on Thursday morning, but unless you were sleeping with your stepmother, this is probably worse than whatever it is. This is a bad deal. So you need to know, like the way in which we're going to talk about dealing with this issue is not precisely the same as every time you see somebody slip up. Serious situation here. And if you were noticing earlier, you may have caught on that Paul's actually, while he's not happy about what this person is doing, he's more upset about the way the church responded to this or didn't respond, as it were. Let's keep reading. He says, uh, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That is intense. Let's just break it down a bit. Paul's not happy with how they responded. How do they respond to their awareness of what this man was doing? They were proud. Does that mean that they were proud of what he was doing 
or that they were proud in spite of what he was doing. I have no idea, but they were proud. They were still saying, look at us, we're such great people. We're such a good church. You should probably look at our church and compare it to yours because ours is better. Like they were proud of themselves and Paul says that's the wrong response. What you should have done is to be very sad about the fact that this was taking place and you should have taken quick action and if this man was not willing to change, you should have put him out of fellowship, told him he was no longer welcome at the church. You should have made it clear to him that he doesn't get to experience the blessings of belonging to the church if he's gonna pretend like he's here but has no real interest in doing what it is that Jesus would call him to do. That's what Paul's upset about. And then he continues on. Let's finish our reading of the passage. These next few verses I'm gonna come back to in a moment because they're more important than it seems at first. He says, your boasting is not good. I'm back in verse six. Don't you know that a little yeast or a little leaven is really what it says? A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. Get rid of the old yeast or leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. This is a previous letter. Not at all meaning people of this world who may be immoral or who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So that's our situation. And before we get any further into the details and before we really look at, okay, so what are we supposed to do? I wanna make sure that we're properly framing this up because I think this is pretty critical. What I wanna suggest to you, and you may think I'm crazy, you may just think I'm like finding something that isn't there. I think it's there for real. What I wanna suggest to you is that actually what Paul is doing in this passage is he is telling us how to enjoy a party. Weird, right? I do, I, do, I really think that's what's going on though. And not just any party, but the party that celebrates God's mercy, the party that celebrates God's deliverance, the party that celebrates what God has done and is continuing to do in and among us. I love to study the Bible because every time I study it, I learn something new. There was a portion of, I'd studied this passage real in depth a number of years ago, and I went back and looked at some of the stuff I'd written up about it then, and it was helpful in some details, but I ignored, for the most part, verses six through eight, about the unleavened bread and the Passover lamb and the festival and all those things, because I didn't really get what was going on. Like, I got part of it. There's a kind of a double meaning there, and the first meaning's clear, but the second one is not as clear. Let's, let me look at it with you. Let me, let me show you what I mean. So, verse six, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? So, that part is fairly clear. We get it. And then it says, get rid of the old yeast or the old leaven so that you may be an unleavened batch. So, you, you get the idea. We have our saying, one bad apple spoils the bunch. So the way they would do it is they would make a batch of bread and they would take some of the leaven from that batch and then they would start the next batch with it. And I don't know a lot about bread making, but that was how they continued to have good bread. So that, that leaven from the previous one really determined the shape of the next loaf. And what Paul is saying is, you may think that this isn't a big deal, but if you just sort of let this go and don't deal with it, it's in the end gonna contaminate the whole group. So that's part of what's going on here, and I think we can pick that up. But Paul also is saying something specific that the people might have understood at the time, we need to not miss. He's not just talking about eating any old bread. He's talking about a specific party among the people of God. It was their Independence Day, where they celebrated something that God had done for them in the past. So they had this festival called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. They do it every year. And they were celebrating the time when God delivered them from slavery years ago in Egypt. 
So the people are in bondage in Egypt and God sends Moses to set them free and there's a tug of war between God and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and it goes back and forth and back and forth and eventually God judges Egypt and her leaders and her people and their gods for their sin, but he protects the people of Israel with the blood of the lamb and then the king is like, y'all get out of here. And as soon as he says that, it's for real this time, they get up and go and they hurry and because they're in a hurry, they take unleavened bread with them on the way out of bondage into freedom. And so every year, around their July 4th, around their Independence Day, they would celebrate this with a festival of unleavened bread about God bringing them into freedom. And what Paul is saying is that that festival has actually been fulfilled in Jesus. He's the Passover lamb whose blood protects us from God's judgment. We now live in this ongoing celebration of freedom, but as long as you allow the leaven of this undealt with sin to continue unchecked, you are hindering your ability to enjoy the party. You are stopping yourself and the rest of the people in the community from experiencing the fullness of what God wants to do in and among you. That's what this means in that context and in this one, that the good effects of God's presence with us are actually limited if we don't deal with each other's sin. When we look the other way in the church, when people in the church are just flagrantly disobeying God's will, as if it doesn't really matter what God wants, we hinder what God is doing right here. I think I probably said it enough different ways. Let's say it one more. Here's the issue, here's the thing. When we turn a blind eye to sin, we tell God to take his blessing elsewhere. So now that we're all super comfortable, (laughs) let's settle in and ask what this text has to say to us today. I do want to approach it within the framework of a question. The rest of our time together is, what do we do now, right? Like, where do we go from here? And here's the question. What does 1 Corinthians 5 demand of us? I know that's a bossy phrase, but this is a bossy text. Let's just let it be what it is. What does this text demand of us? And I want to break it down in the pattern that Mark often uses. I love this. It's very simple. It goes head, heart, hands. I want to look at something that we're supposed to think. I want to look at something at the level of our heart. And then I wanna look at something that we're supposed to do. All that come out of this text. Let's start with the head. Here's the first thing. What do we do? What does this demand of us? It demands that we adjust our idea of the church. That's where this hits us first. If you think 1 Corinthians 5 sounds crazy, unthinkable, unpracticable, if you can't ever imagine yourself being part of some some system or some, some conversation where the end result is looking at somebody and saying, you're no longer welcome here at church, If that sounds absolutely outlandish to you, that's a symptom. And the diagnosis is that you've got a limited understanding of the church. And that understanding of the church needs to be adjusted. How much? Well, that kind of depends on us, right? That depends on you. How out of whack are things in your understanding of the church? It's kind of like a couple of, I don't know, it's been a couple of weeks now, I think. Our daughter comes up to us and says, my door won't shut. And so we went and looked at the door, and usually it shuts pretty easily, but sure enough, it wouldn't latch. And, and we're kind of looking closely, and we noticed that the door frame has totally come off of its mark. And this was, like, pretty scary, because this can be a serious thing. It can be evidence of, of problems at the foundation, and that's immediately where my mind goes. I mean, it's a little bit of an older house, so I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, our foundation is screwed up, or something's going on in our roof. Oh, and so I'm, like, looking. I didn't get out of the crawl space, but I'm trying to do everything else I could to figure out what's going on. I'm calling people over who know more about that stuff than I do. I'm trying to figure out the issue. So one day, I'm stressed about this, right? I can't relax on it. I go over there, and I'm like, well, maybe this will work. And I just take that door frame, and I just shove it back in the direction I think it should go, and it pops right back into place. And I'm like, oh, great. Let's celebrate because our foundation seems to be fine. It was just, it just wasn't locked in there very well and it needed a little pop. 
So where is your understanding of the church? Does it just need a little pop back into place? Or are there problems at the foundation? What do you think of the church? Why does this thing exist? Is it like a gas station? You hear that sometimes. You just come, you get filled up, and you go back out. Is it like a social club, a place that's designed so that you can maybe facilitate some, some relationships that you might otherwise not have? Is the church here to help people? There's a question. Is the church here to help people? Well, yeah. Does the church exist to help people? Is it, yes, it's true. I mean, at least in part, that's part of what's going on right here. Some of the weird language, and I know it's probably not the language you would use, so I want you to understand what Paul means. When he says that, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna get together and you're gonna hand this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. Really dramatic language, and importantly so. His point is, this person is acting like they're within the domain of God's blessing, God's protection, but he's actually not, he's really clearly not interested in entrusting his life to the Lord. So I want you to go ahead and make clear what is actually the case, that he is outside the fellowship. You, you hand him beyond the realm of God's protection, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That doesn't mean like the death of his body, it means for him to come to terms with the fact that there's something within him that is pulling him away from God and that that thing needs to be destroyed hopefully, so that on the day of the Lord, he will be received. It actually works. 2 Corinthians 2 tells us. Paul writes another letter and says, okay, enough, enough. He's repented, like let him back in. So his concern is for the person, but it's not only for the person. It's also for the group, and it's for the group in relationship to God. Maybe that goes without saying for you. I don't know, but let's give it another thought. Most of us would happily acknowledge that the Bible tells us that we are not to judge in certain ways. I wonder if we would just as readily acknowledge that the Bible actually tells us to judge in certain ways. What's going on here? There's a clue in the quotation marks around the last sentence in this passage. Expel the wicked person from among you. It's got quotation marks around it because it's a quotation, and it's from the Old Testament. Paul's actually quoting from an old book called Deuteronomy. He's quoting this statement, expel the wicked person from among you, that can be found in Deuteronomy 13.5, and 17.7, and 19.19, and 21.21, and 22.21, and 22.24, and 24.7. Seven times. It's like over and over and over. And the point back then, maybe if we look back then, we'll understand a bit about now. The point back then in Deuteronomy was, this is, God is shaping a people. God is shaping his family, this nation of Israel in the Old Testament, to be his holy nation, his holy people. That means separate. That means different. God wants them to be different from everybody around them. Why? Because they're morally superior? No, they're actually not. Why? Because they're bigger and stronger? No, they're actually not. He wants them to be holy and to live differently so that the nations can look and say, that's probably how life is supposed to be lived. Maybe there's something about their God that we should pay attention to. God wants them to be different because God himself is promising to dwell in their midst. And that's why in the Old Testament it says expel the wicked person. Because if God is here, then the person who wants to pretend to belong to his family but has no interest in obeying his commands cannot be here. Look, we protect what's valuable to us from that which intrudes all the time. Think about how, like if you see a spider in the woods, you're probably just going to avoid the spider. If you see a spider in a nursery, that spider is done, right? Like you're just gonna, I don't even care if you're a gentle person. You better smash the spider if it's crawling along the crib. And I realize the analogy is a little bit weird because the problem is that the spider is a threat to the baby, whereas in reality, like God is a threat to unrepentant sin, but it still holds. And even apart from the poison, even if there's a spider crawling along the crib and you told me, oh, it's okay, I know the baby's sleeping, it actually is fine even if the spider kind of crawls around the baby because it's not a poisonous spider. I am not going to allow that to happen. 
because a baby is, 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 is a sacred thing and spiders don't belong here. And that's the point. God is sacred and his presence is here because we're his temple and that's why sin doesn't belong. In 1 Corinthians chapter three, before we get to this, Mark read it last week, Paul says that the church, the body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians six, the very next chapter, Paul says that your bodies are temples of the Spirit. I don't think it's an accident that the call to maintain the holiness of one another in the family is bracketed by this awareness that the church is the temple of the Spirit. Is the church a gas station? Kind of, yeah, I actually kinda like that. Come on, get filled up and go back out there. Is the church a social club? I mean, sort of, it's very partial, but it's like I do, we do want real relationships to happen here. But the church is most of all a temple of God's spirit. Is the church here to help people? Well, of course we are, because we're here first and foremost to honor God. And because of who God is, everybody's welcome through the front doors of the church. I don't care how terrible of a person you are. This might be your first time in church in 20 years. You are welcome here. Come on in the doors. And I don't care who you are, you might be the most gentle, loving, wouldn't hurt a fly creature who perceives themselves to be and is perceived by others to be a pretty good person. You, along with that person who's the worst sinner in the world, everybody here is welcome and everybody here is gonna be called to change because we're the church, because that's who we are. Like, who are you to get up in my business? We're the church. And the church is the safest, most dangerous place in the world. And that is beautiful and messy, and unpopular. Who are you to get up in my business? I just told you we're the church, and God is here, and therefore we respond. I need to move on, you get the point. If we don't adjust our idea of the church, then we cannot faithfully be the church. It has to start with the idea, but it can't stop with the idea. You gotta move on to the heart. Second thing, love holiness. It's a weird phrase. If you don't like that, maybe you could hear me saying prioritize holiness. That's fine, but it's a little mechanical. I wanna ask if you love holiness. Is holiness, is, an important, is it an important thing to you? Like is it a major value in your assessment of yourself and the people around you? It kinda of sounds weird to say love holiness. And I like that. Do you love holiness? Careful how you answer the question. I know what I want the answer to be. Well, of course I love holiness. Who do you think I am? I'm a lover of holiness. I didn't know it before, but I know it now. Like, be careful. I want to assume that I'm the good type of person, but that's a dangerous assumption. You know, I'm reading a book right now. It's kind of disturbing. It's called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. And uh, the, the author is Dan Ariely. He's a Duke professor. The subtitle's great, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. It's a really interesting book. There is a whole chapter on golf, by the way. Anyway, he makes a distinction in the book between deliberate dishonesty. This is the point that resonates for me. Between deliberate dishonesty on the one hand, I shouldn't point to the Bible when I say that, and, uh, and wishful blindness on the other. I don't think I'm deliberately dishonest in my answer to this question, but there might be some wishful blindness. Do I love holiness? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, it's mostly true. It's not untrue. It's basically true. It's true. There's an easy way to find out. How do you respond when you notice people dishonoring God? whether the person is somebody else or the person is you. Because it's like on paper it makes sense. If God is real and all of this is true, if God is real and all of this is true, then holiness matters more than other things that matter to us. If God is real and this stuff is true, then holiness matters more than whether my friend is happy in his marriage or his job. 
then holiness matters more than whether my child you know, makes the starting squad when they get to high school or has the requisite grades to get into the program of our choice or has a certain place in the social status ladder in their little, little, little kid community. Like It matters more than those things for them. And, and if all of this is real and God is true, then, then holiness matters more than whether I succeed in business or make enough money or, or win enough accolades or convince everybody to vote for whichever candidate I think you need to vote for. Like It matters more than that. If it's real and true, then it matters more than harmony. And I know we don't like conflict. It matters more than privacy. And I don't love people up in my business. But if God is real and all of this is true, then on paper it makes perfect sense. Like it stands to reason that if that really is my top priority, if that is something I love, then if you come to me and call me on some issues in my life, I'm not gonna like it, but I'm gonna listen. And if this is something that we love, then I see, and I see something in your life that needs some attention, like I'm not just gonna ignore it, I'm actually going to initiate a conversation with you, I'm actually going to take responsibility for your formation, and I'm gonna start a conversation, and I have no idea how it's gonna go, but I know that I have to say something like this. Yo, I think what you're doing is wrong. And that's not something we should take pleasure in saying. But it is the risk that we should be willing to take. I've already moved on, so let me move on. Number three, here's the hands part, here's the active part, risk uncomfortable conversations. You see, the call of this passage is for us to take responsibility for one another's formation into looking like Jesus. It's to consider it like part of my job as a human and as a follower of Jesus to, to sure, walk in obedience, but help other people do the same and, and to allow others to do the same for me, even if it means like these weird confrontation conversations. Not like indiscriminately. It's not like this is a blank check. Some of you are like, you know, crime hounds. You just wanna go find some sin and stamp it out. This is not a blank check for you to just come up to strangers in our church and start calling them on stuff, okay? Like as a general rule, the better you, and this is important, the better you know someone, the closer the relationship, the more likely you need to start at conversation. And the less you know them, and the more distance between you and that person, man, the less likely you are to be the one. Now don't use that as an excuse, but recognize the principle. If you think that Jesus is calling you to be the crime police for Christ Church of Orinogo, I have a message from God for you. He is not. And it's also not something where we can do this in such a way that enables us to ignore their own sin. I think this is partially why we don't do it. Like I know I'm not perfect, so I don't wanna step out. And It's also sometimes why we do it. If I can focus on other people's sin, I don't have to pay attention to my own. Like obviously that's not okay. One more caveat, there's actually, I forgot to tell you this, there's actually a little asterisk in the Greek and then a footnote that Paul wrote in, and it translates to something like this. No part of this text is to be put in practice on Facebook. I think Paul just wants to make that super clear. This is not that type of engagement. Matter of fact, let's look and note that this is like a snapshot in a longer process. We're looking at the end result of some attempt, what should be some attempts to, to right the ship. Like you don't start with, oh by the way, I noticed that you did something wrong today, you're not welcome back here next Sunday. That's not how it goes. It's like this, there's a lot actually in the Bible on this, and a matter of fact, I wanna mention this. Uh, you may or may not know that there's a, C a Christchurch app that you can download, and there's a sermon notes section on there. And at the bottom of the sermon notes for today, there's a for further study, and I've given you some other passages I'm not even gonna read that detail what the Bible says about how to go about these processes. It's a pretty simple thing, I can tell it to you pretty quickly. If you think something's wrong, then you go talk to somebody. Not like this, not like this, but like this six feet away probably, but you go talk to somebody. 
there's something going on in your life that I think needs some attention. I don't think it's a good thing. And if it, if it goes well, great. If they like listen and repent and acknowledge and I wanna fix this, then good, win-win. If they don't, then make sure that your facts are right. Make sure that your heart is right. But if you're still concerned, go get somebody else. I gotta bring a brother or sister along. We gotta have another conversation that still isn't sitting well with me. I know this is annoying to you, but it's not sitting well with me. Like we need to talk it through. And if they realize, you know what, okay, I get it, you're right and repent, awesome, win-win. If they don't and you're still concerned, then talk to the pastors, they'll help you take it from there. I'll be honest with you though, it's not like it's one of those, I just, I don't know, how many think about it, I don't know how to do this, I don't know if I'm good at it. Nobody's good at it. It's not a matter of procedure, it's not a matter of if you had the how-to, then all of a sudden you'd be fine. Sometimes knowing how to do something doesn't help you very much at all. I actually was thinking, whenever I was thinking through this call to be a person, and by the way, I'm not preaching at you in these moments. I don't find myself to be super competent at these conversations, but that's beside the point. I just don't want it on my record that my failure to talk to somebody is what hindered God's ability to move in our church. But I was thinking about this call and it reminded me of, 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 a, of a project I'd done years ago. I was actually an undergrad here at Ozark uh, years and years ago and Peter Buckland was one of my professors and I was taking a class on marriage and family and I was in the class with my then fiance, now wife Beth, and I thought, I keep hearing that marriage communication is really important and so I'm gonna write a paper on marital communication. So I study this thing and I'm doing my research and I'm writing this paper. I still remember, I got 105% on this paper, okay? I mean, I killed it. And he's like, excellent work, this is so good. You know, those sorts of comments, this is great. And then I got married. <laughs> and I don't know like what the living equivalent of 105% is when it comes to marital communication, but I know that it was not me, okay? Like I literally wrote a paper that probably could have turned into a book and people would have thought, oh, he's pretty good at this. No, 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 I can write it, but doing it is a different story. So don't think that because you don't know how to approach these, that that's actually the hang up. The hang up is do I care about things in the right order and do I have the courage to risk an uncomfortable conversation? It's not like this should happen all the time. It's not like this should be a weekly occurrence. I was in full-time ministry for about a decade before we moved back here and in that time, I only was involved in an excommunication once. It was actually the last day of my employment at that church. The last thing I did, here's a sign off, is I wrote an excommunication letter to a lady in the church and I did, took no pleasure in it. It was at the end of a years long process with I don't know how many really difficult conversations. And I said on behalf of the elders in the church, I need to inform you that unless you are willing to change some of these things, you are no longer welcome at this church. I regret to have to say this. You may or may not believe this. We love you and we wanna see the best for you. Let us know when you'd like to talk. Sincerely, sign off. It shouldn't happen all the time, but it should happen. And it's gonna be awkward and it's gonna be tense and you're gonna be risking some things. But here's the thing you need to understand. You're risking something either way. Because when we turn a blind eye to sin, we tell God to take his blessing somewhere else. Let me land this thing, let me make this personal. Let me put this as personally as I can. When you ignore my sin, we all suffer. And when I ignore yours, same. We're gonna give you some space here for a few moments to reflect and to listen and to think and to pray. And man, I want you to think about like, what if after this, somebody comes and approaches you and says, I need to talk to you about something. By the way, if you wanna 
have a fun moment in the lobby after church, just go up to somebody and say, I heard the sermon today and I need to have a conversation with you. <laughs> but I want you to seriously think about like, if somebody comes up to you and says something like that, how are you gonna respond? Think it through now. Soften your heart. Be willing to listen. Maybe they're wrong. Maybe they're right. The other thing though, is I want you to draw your attention to what you may have been trying to ignore. And that is, if there's a person that's kind of been popping into your mind or in your heart as we talk throughout this morning and you leave that thought alone, I'm just gonna listen. Well, maybe that's, maybe that's what we need to listen to. It'll be awkward, it'll be tense, it might not go exactly as planned. And you might not wanna risk upsetting the harmony. Well, you're risking something either way, so choose the right risk. And if your attention is being led in a particular direction, then you follow that direction and you do what the Lord is calling you to do. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.